0: Hello everyone, I'm Rania Kallick and this is Dispatches. The yellow peril is back. Or more accurately, the anti-communist witch hunts are back. In the U.S., we're taught that the McCarthy era was a stain on the country. Led by Senator Joseph McCarthy throughout the 50s, this red scare saw hundreds of Americans dragged before the House Un-American Activities Committee and accused of ties to communism, during a time of Cold War hysteria. Half a century later, the spirit of McCarthy is alive and well as the U.S. escalates its Cold War on China. This new era of McCarthyism depends on loose and selective interpretations and enforcement of existing legal measures with some racial profiling and guilt by association mixed in. People have been forced to register as foreign agents, Chinese nationals have been chased out of academia, and wild and easily disproven stories about China, often sourced to the State Department or think tanks connected to the U.S. government, proliferate in the capitalist press, priming the U.S. public for never-ending expansion of the U.S. war machine. Here to discuss the New Red Scare and why it's so dangerous both domestically and internationally is Amanda Yi a writer and organizer based in Brooklyn, host of the podcast Radio Free Amanda, and author of the piece Red Scare Reloaded. But before we jump into it, this is just the first half of this episode. The second half is available to Breakthrough News members only. You can become a member at patreon.com slash breakthrough news.
1: Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's It's such an honor to be on.
0: Well, it's so good to have you on and it's like been a long time coming. Um I feel like this should have happened a long time ago. But this is the perfect time to do this because you've been writing such amazing pieces for mostly for Liberation News and I want to get into more than one of them, but I think a good place to start is a recent piece that was published by you. The title, as I said in the intro, is Red Scare Reloaded: Chinese Foreign Agents in a new era of McCarthyism. And, you know, I, I, I love this piece of yours because you always, I love all the pieces you write, but I love that you always go deep into some of the history of these things. And, you know, I think when most of us think of McCarthyism and the Red Scare, we think of the Soviet Union, right? When the, mm-hmm. like, uh, But you explain in this piece how the Red Scare, which I did not know, was actually, like under McCarthy, was precipitated by Mao's takeover of China. Right. Um, so I'm curious if you can kind of like give us some background on that because most people aren't aware is like, how do we have this Senator Joseph McCarthy getting started and what was the role of the Chinese revolution in that?
1: Yeah, so there are actually a lot of parallels um, with this new era of Red Scare and the previous Red Scare, right? Um, As you mentioned, a lot of people don't know this, but McCarthyism, like the previous era of McCarthyism in the 1950s, that was actually launched by China's revolution in 1949, the Communist Revolution. And uh, like in the eyes of the American government, this was a loss for them. It was, they called it the loss of China because the communists had defeated the U.S.-backed KMT, right? And so in February of 1950, uh, Joseph McCarthy, Senator Joseph McCarthy, he, um, uh, he had a speech in what it's now called the loss of China speech. And he delivered it uh, in front of the Women's Republican Club in Wheeling, West Virginia, I believe. And um, in this speech, he was basically looking for scapegoats within the U.S. government to blame for the U.S. government's so-called loss of China, right? And so this speech accused the U.S. State Department of harboring secret communist agents. And, um, you know, there's a quote from the speech that says, like he says in this speech that he had over 200 names within the State Department alone who were either card-carrying members of the Communist Party in the U.S., or at least they were loyal to the Communist Party. And, you know one, uh, there's this one uh, excerpt from the speech that I want to read, and it says... Please. One thing to remember in discussing the communists in our government is that we are not dealing with spies who get 30 pieces of silver to steal the blueprints of new weapons. We are dealing with a far more sinister type of activity because it permits the enemy to guide and shape our policy. So this speech really kicked off... um, the period of McCarthyism, as we know it now, right? And this was a this led to a period where FBI agents would knock on Chinese people's doors, lie to them, and try to intimidate them, pressure them to expose one of their families as you know what's known as a paper son. Um, a paper son is someone who like immigrated here with fraudulent papers. Um, And that's what it was like in the 50s. It produced this real palpable climate of fear among Chinese Americans. So uh, McCarthy's witch hunt, it initially started as, um, you know, a witch hunt targeting uh, like China experts in the State Department. But that kind of spread out to uh, other U.S. government employees and then like out into society. You know, Hollywood actors were targeted. Uh, organizers were targeted. Teachers were targeted. Um, and the Chinese-American community also was especially targeted. And so there are a lot of parallels to what happened back then in the 1950s and what's happening now. And we can go like a little bit uh, like, more into detail in the, the persecution that the Chinese community is seeing now. But, um, you know, like, one example that has been making a lot of headlines is like in Florida, DeSantis just passed a new law which uh, bans Chinese people from buying property in certain restricted areas, right? Um, and this law in particular targets Chinese people. It also applies to citizens of Cuba, Venezuela, Syria, Iran, um, DPRK, I believe, but it's Chinese citizens and those selling property to, that, to them that are subject to the harshest penalties. Like for the, um, for the others the, for like the Syrian citizens and all those, that's just a misdemeanor, but for Chinese people, it's a felony, Um, And so the ACLU, you know, says that this law will have this, like, net effect of creating Chinese exclusion zones that will cover immense portions of Florida, including the state's most densely populated and developed areas. And so there is this, like there's this fear and paranoia that's being produced around the Chinese community. Um, And it's a fear over them being, uh, you know, uh, government infiltrators or spies for the Chinese government that's being pushed by the U S government itself. And it's being pushed, um, like, especially by think tanks. Like Mm -hmm. if you read the think tank reports, from, you know, places like uh, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Council on Foreign Relations. The language that they use is strikingly similar to the language used in the last Red Scare. Um, very similar to McCarthy's loss of China speech. Like these reports that they put out, they'll often warn about needing to be vigilant against like so-called foreign agents in our midst. Um, they talk about China's expanding influence operations, and they paint a picture of Chinese agents who co-opt Americans into advancing China's foreign policy agenda and their economic interests. And, um, yeah, they often rely on uh, certain mechanisms, certain statutes, like the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which we can talk about in a bit. Um, But, yeah, yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, no, I just wanted to note a couple of things that you said that, like, really stand out, and that's, like, the idea of the loss of China when you're talking about Joseph McCarthy. God, could that be any more just U.S. like narcissism of the loss of China as if Mm the China like belongs to us. But moreover, I do. Yeah, I do want to get into, obviously, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. But real quick, I want to touch on what you mentioned about the think tanks, because Mm -hmm. it's really interesting. And you've written about this quite a bit in terms of these various think tanks that receive an, an immense amount of funding from like NATO, the U.S. State Department, various weapons companies that are helping to sort of launder a lot of these ideas that also we see happening in parallel with the ideas being pushed forward by white papers in the Pentagon. Um, And when it comes to like the Red Scare propaganda, you talk about in this piece and others about how that's also being laundered through these D.C. policy think tanks. And you mentioned specifically like uh, these papers by like the Hoover Institute for example or the Council on Foreign Relations that are pushing these ideas and I'm curious if you'd like to like elaborate a bit on just the role of these think tanks that are presenting themselves as in, as like factories of independent analysis and thought when in actuality they are just pushing the US empire's agenda through mm-hmm. these like middlemen
1: yeah, and I, I've written about this before, but if you look at some of the most anti-China think tanks, um, I'm talking about the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the Center for a New American uh, Security, mm-hmm. the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which I mentioned earlier, um, Hudson Institute, Atlantic Council, um, the International Institute for Strategic Studies, um, If you look at their annual reports, um, which are often made public, you can just Google them and look through them. If you look through their annual reports, you'll see uh, their sources of funding. And uh, more often than not, they receive, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year from military contractors. Military contractors like Northrop Grumman, um, Lockheed Martin, um, General Atomics um and they receive all this money from these think tanks and you know they receive all this money and they push a certain agenda regarding not just China but also like US involvement in Ukraine they push a certain line in order to uh create more money for for these um uh, for these military contractors, right? Because the military contractors consider uh, these donations to these think tanks as a source of investment because if they push, like, a particular warmongering line on China or, like, they push a line that really encourages um, further U.S. involvement in Ukraine, they get to sell more weapons, right? Um, so, yeah, so, you know... There, there has been this particular, like, anti-China rhetoric that's really been popularized within the past few years, within the context of this Red Scare, that a lot of these think tanks have been responsible for. And these think tanks not only, um, you know, They're read by lawmakers and they influence policy, um, but they also uh, have media contacts. So whenever a New York Times article wants to write a story about China or like the rise of Xi Jinping or, you know, an article about Taiwan, they always, you know, call up a representative from this think tank and uh, there, this representative from this think tank will then be quoted in the New York Times, and you know it gives like that story, that quote, a particular veneer of legitimacy because you know why would you question uh, this like DC policy think tank that you know supposedly is an expert on like China-U.S. relations, right? But I mean, you have to look at the sources of funding behind these because they receive a massive amount of money from uh, weapons manufacturers that would make a ton of money in this new Cold War against China or like a full on military confrontation with China
0: no totally and it's like it's like this is this is literally the military industrial complex and like in in your face and of course these mainstream media outlets never say anything about where all of these various outfits are getting their funding from and we'll probably go a bit in more into i the acronym is ASPI later mm-hmm. because they've been like a very dominant force and in, in pushing some of the most insane stuff on China. But I want to get a bit into the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which is what you cover in this piece in particular. And it's so insidious and crazy. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with this. The idea is like, of course, the acronym is FARA. Mm-hmm. And some people who watch this program may have heard of it. And uh, in like relation to rt getting uh labeled a foreign agent at some point in the aftermath of like the trump administration being elected to power and russia being blamed for that but so like let's let's break it down in simplistic forms because of just how like crazy this the way that far is being used is and, and and also the potential for it to be used in even more expansionist measures uh, with FARA. But let's start with, like, what is the Foreign Registrations Act? And maybe let's begin with some of the history of it.
1: Yeah, so the Foreign Agents Registration Act, it's a law that states that any individual or entity, you know, what they call a foreign agent, um, that represents the interests of a foreign government, they have to register it with the Department of Justice. So it's basically a public disclosure statute Um, And it states if you're working on behalf of or the interests of a foreign government, you need to register with the DOJ and periodically disclose your activities, um, disclose all the finances involved, whether you received money from it, how much. Um, And if you don't do that, if you don't register, then you're subject to prosecution um, by the FBI. So after you file, uh, your name or your organization goes into a DOJ online database uh, along with the foreign principal you're working for. Um, it's a name and shame kind of method for promoting favorable speech. Um, so now the problem with FARA is that if you read the statute itself, it's written in such a vague, sweeping manner that it tends to lend itself to like very broad interpretation. And because of that, it's very easily weaponized politically. So there are four covered activities that you can be indicted for under FARA. Um, one is soliciting money or anything uh, of value on behalf of the interests of the foreign principal, right? That's the foreign the foreign principal is the foreign government. So there's the foreign principal and then the foreign agent. Um, the second is representing the interests of a foreign principal before any agency or official of the US government. The third is engaging in, you know, what they say, political activities for or in the interests of a foreign principal. And the fourth is acting as a public relations counsel, information service employee, or political consultant for or in the interests of a foreign principal. So it's the second two, the last two, that are especially broad, right? Um When they say political activities, that could really mean anything, and it's not limited to just political lobbying. Um, It means engaging in any kind of activity in the eyes of the U.S. government, which would promote the interests of a foreign government and try to influence U.S. policy or public opinion around those interests. And um, it's been used against political activists who have spoken out against U.S. policy. Uh, like, for instance, one of the more famous indictments under Farah was W.E.B. Du-, du-, du Bois, um, who was prosecuted under Farah in 1959. Um, and what they indicted him for was um, he was passing out literature and petitioning against uh, the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And so they used Farah to say that he was... Um, Uh, a Soviet agent, that he was (laughs) acting in the interests of the Soviet Union. So in particular, it's really dangerous in these moments of Red Scare paranoia. Um, Like, for instance, in the context of the Ukraine war, right? Because you and I have both seen that anything that remotely challenges uh, U.S. involvement in that war is automatically smeared as Putin propaganda. And it has been used in that way recently, right? Um, recently, members of the African Socialist People's Party have been indicted under FARA for promoting the interests of Russia because they've been very vocal opponents of U.S. involvement in the Ukraine war in the past year. Um, the specific acts that they've been accused of of committing as violations of FARA, they include, you know, attending um, an international conference in Russia, publishing um, what's called a petition to the United Nations on the crime of genocide against African people in the United States of America, Um, accepting financial support from a Russian national, um, and just like in general, publishing and speaking in support of the Russian government. Um, And so you can see how far uh, as it stands has been used to target, uh, you know, communists and also Black liberation organizers, right? Uh, In the Cold War against China, it's also been weaponized in that way. Um, It's been used to politically target organizers who advocate for peaceful relations between China and the U.S. Uh, One example of this has has been Henry Liang, who's a 63-year-old hotel worker, um, a union organizer and activist. Um, and he's active within Boston's Chinese-American community. Um, and he was indicted under FARA for exactly this reason, um, just advocating against this new Cold War against China. And the, but the DOJ is trying to say he's a foreign agent because he's been, you know, very vocal about U.S. foreign policy. So, FARA is incredibly broad in scope, but also very selectively enforced, right? Who does and doesn't count as a foreign agent is entirely political. Like, for instance, AIPAC is one of the biggest and most powerful lobbying groups in the U.S. Its primary purpose is to make sure that members of Congress promote the interests of Israel— but it's not registered under FARA, and there has never really been a campaign to make it uh, register by, uh, Make it register under FARA, right? And so you can see how FARA is used as a way of controlling speech, particularly speech that doesn't align with U.S. interests. Um, you mentioned before, like, foreign outlets like RT, Sputnik... CGTN, um, a lot of the Chinese state media news stations, they have all been forced to register under FARA. And this is like a tactic on the part of the ruling class, making itself the arbiters of what is and isn't propaganda, right? So FARA, using FARA in marks for news outlets that are based in countries that are enemies of the U.S., uh, they mark the news coming out of that as propaganda, but at the same time, it legitimizes U.S. corporate media, um, you know, who have been the most uh, like vocal purveyors of a war uh, in of a war against China, and then like further U.S. involvement in Ukraine. They legitimize uh, those outlets like the New York Times, and Washington Post, as arbiters of objective journalism. Yeah. And- and you know, like again, the application is far as, far as really selectively enforced. Like, why isn't the Guardian, BBC News, re- not registered? You know, they're based in the UK.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, the BBC is literally given money from the the UK government, um, so it's not even just like being based there. And also, the point you make about APAC, I mean, APAC is actually the American-Israel Public Affairs mm-hmm. Committee lobbies on behalf of the israelis it's not just apac you also have like freedom of defensive democracy which is like an insanely right-wing i don't even know if you can really call it a think tank that's like really a generous label Mm -hmm. but i'll give it to them for a moment completely embedded with the israeli government not forced to to register as a foreign agent i think most people are familiar of the far registration as what you mentioned being related to like RT and CGTN. Yeah. But of course, like that application itself is so selective because like other BBC is not forced to like D- D- Deutsche Well, which is the German funded outlet is not forced to register in this way as well. So it's obviously being incredibly politicized. And then, of course, like it's so insane what you talked about with respect to the African Socialist Party that you mentioned in the past with W.E.B. Du Bois. It just shows like the extent to which this can be used against things that aren't necessarily even funded by a state, because at least with RT or CGTN, you could say, OK, yes, this is something that receives funding from a state that is technically like an adversary of the U.S. And and that's where, you know, I think I'd, I'd really like for you. Or, well, one thing I would just do want to note that you mentioned in your piece is this idea of this is the part of the loose interpretation we're talking about, right? Like it's one thing to legitimize or normalize the idea of labeling outlets, certain outlets only that are funded by a state like CGTN or RT. And people are like, okay, fine. Let it register as a foreign agent. Because I think most progressives, unfortunately in the global North saw that and were like, okay, whatever. But the language of this is so vague that as you mentioned in your piece, it also seems like it could include most reporting by journalists in general because it talks about the idea of anyone who influences us public opinion on a policy issue even if it's just through factual reporting if it like uh, if it's something that promotes something that maybe China or Russia would also agree with and that's mm-hmm. what's also incredibly alarming here because then this gives space to the idea of like oh if somebody just tells the truth and the truth happens to in certain Align aspects, with
1: P- what Putin said at right. one point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Then suddenly you're maybe liable to be forced to register as a foreign agent. And that is what, of course, and again, I don't, I'm not saying I agree with the idea of like RT or CGTN having to register this way, but it's like, it's so much more, uh, broad than that in terms of the way it could be applied. I just want to like enf- emphasize that point, but you know, I want to ask you about, The significance of Russiagate and the Mueller investigation on the use Mm -hmm. of FARA, because this is like something like you mentioned, it's been around for a very long time. It's like this kind of obscure law that was used for a period. People forgot about it for a while and then Russiagate happens and suddenly we're hearing about it again. So what was the significance of Russiagate and the Mueller investigation in in the use and proliferation, I should say, of FARA?
1: Yeah. So, you know, going back to the beginning, FARA was created in 1938 as a way to curb Nazi propaganda, right? Um, FARA itself was created as a recommendation by the Special Committee on Un-American Activities, which was a precursor to the House Committee on Un-American Activities. And that was the committee active during the McCarthyism era that investigated uh, that investigated people suspecting, suspected of having communist sympathies. Um, It was a very important tool in the last Red Scare period. Um, So FARA was first used to target those spreading Nazi propaganda, um, and then its enforcement uh, pretty quickly declined after World War II. So between 1966 and 2015-2016, the DOJ only prosecuted seven cases under FARA. But the few uh, indictments seen during the last few decades targeted communists and anti-war activists. So in the last few decades, uh, Farah had been pretty much a political weapon against anti-war organizations. So they used FARA to go after organizations like the Palestine Information Office, the Irish Northern Aid Committee, and the Committee in Solidarity with the people of El Salvador. So up until the Robert Mueller investigation... FARA was like a very obscure, rarely enforced statute, and most lobbyists never really bothered to register um, because it was never really enforced and there were no consequences and they'd rather not like do all that paperwork and do all that checking in, right? So this all changed during the Mueller investigation, which ended up prosecuting two members of Trump's campaign um, campaign staff who allegedly had ties to Russia, right? And so after this happened, um, FAR registrations like skyrocketed because the investigation was such a high-profile case. And so the DOJ began to wield it with increasing regularity as a political weapon. So mostly they've been using it uh, against ordinary citizens. And, uh, after the, um, Mueller investigation, the Trump administration began to use Farah to its own advantage and it started invoking Farah with increasing regularity as he escalated his trade war with China and as political tensions increased with China. So you can see, like, obviously this is like a political weapon, right? Because as these, uh, as the Cold War China is escalating, so are FAR investigations of, you know, Chinese individuals. Um, and then, oh, sorry, yeah, go continue. ahead. Continue, no, no, I don't mean to interrupt. Please continue. Oh, no. No, no. Um, so I was just going to say, like, um, like a major initiative in 2018 was um, the Department of Justice launched what was known as the China Initiative. It was like a pretty brief campaign, lasted from 2018 to 2000. 22, I want to say. But it was launched to go after uh, and prosecute Chinese nationals living in the U.S. for alleged espionage activities and theft of intellectual property. Um, So before it was officially ended in 2022, it really, it was criticized for creating a climate of fear among Asian American communities. Um, But MIT Technology Review, they put out like this really uh, in-depth analysis. Um, they look, looked through all of the cases brought uh, in the in the China Initiative, um, and they found that, you know, there was—the China Initiative was never like officially defined by the DOJ, um, and it, they never explained what leads it to label a case as part of the initiative— And over the course of the initiative, there was, um, you know, it started, you know, going after so-called spies and hackers, Chinese spies and hackers. But as the initiative went on, um, they sort of shifted focus toward academics Um, toward targeting what they called research integrity issues. And so they would target academics and researchers, Chinese academics and researchers, for the failure, for something as simple as like the failure to disclose um, a foreign affiliation on a grant-related form or like incorrectly filling out um, a grant-related form. So most of these cases had little or no obvious connection to national security issues and to speak to the way that like racial profiling plays in these kinds of red scare initiatives 90% of those charged under the initiative were of chinese descent so of the cases involving academics most of them were dismissed with the defendants accusing the fbi investigators of like misconduct and some of them have got, come forward and have said uh, that the fbi agents like straight up lied uh, on their search warrant affidavits. So uh, there were cases um, in the China initiative where um, the people, the defendants were found or they pled guilty. But even those I'm sus- suspicious of because, you know, I've been involved in police brutality work. And a very common tactic among um, law enforcement, and I'm including FBI here, is that they tend to target vulnerable people, people who like, you know, aren't American citizens, people who don't speak English that well or don't know the legal system that well, they use these really manipulative tactics to force a confession out of you. Yeah. So often what they'll do is that they'll lie and they say, we have all this evidence against you. You should plead guilty. That way you'll only get three years in prison rather than 20. And, you know, once they force a confession out of you, that's it. It doesn't matter if you retract it later.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's yeah. horrible. It's horrible. And then, you, no, no, this is like, I mean, I really want people to like let that soak in for a second, the level of racial profiling that went into the this China initiative, which I actually was not familiar with until I read your piece and it just sounds so horrible. And yes, it did end and we can talk more about like how the Biden administration has continued. A lot of the anti-China stuff that Trump started. I mean, I guess this one did end in 2022, but you do cite like, the study, the MIT, like the study that went into like what took place and basically like debunking everything that people were accused of. But Amanda, one other thing you mentioned in this piece that just seemed so insane to me, which I also didn't know about and I'm quoting, is in 2018 the House Committee on Natural Resources brought FARA inquiries against four environmental advocacy organizations. One of these organizations was the Natural Resources Defense Council which the committee accused of, quote, aiding China's perception management efforts with regard to environmental protections in ways that may be detrimental to the United States. And this sounds hilarious because it's so it just sounds ridiculous, but also is like quite scary as well, because now you're talking about going after environmental organizations on top of the racial profiling against individuals. I'm curious if you can talk about that as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, the the way that FARA has been used has been so broad. Um, if you read, you know, some of the interviews with people who have been indicted under FARA and maybe like their cases were dismissed later, they will say that, you know, I've read things where like they said the FBI just made things up, that the FBI used intimidation tactics to, uh, you know, gather all this evidence. Um, and they were intimidating that the FBI was intimidating like themselves and their family members, or, you know, the main witness or the main accuser um, th- that went to the FBI, uh, you know, they had some sort of, um, you know, uh, what do you call it? They had like some sort of disagreement with uh, the person who is accused and they use this as like a sort of revenge, right? So oftentimes, uh, you know, the evidence brought against these people is so flimsy and because the statute is written in such a broad sweeping way, it can be, it really, it really easily lends itself to political weaponization. And, you know, like, a lot of the FARA cases have been dismissed, but, you know, there's been like sort of a media frenzy around these people who are being accused of Chinese spies. And, you know, the stories around these, it's not, it doesn't really matter if it's true or not. It's just that what really matters is the circulation itself. Um, It It like lends itself to this Cold War narrative of scaring people into believing that, you know, there are Chinese spies among us. Um, And it, you know, dehumanizes Chinese people and it preps people for a war with China.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear the rest, you can access it by becoming a Breakthrough News member at patreon.com slash breakthrough news.